Welcome to Life on Plato's Cave. I am Mario Veen. This is episode 29, Philosophy of Science with Rani Lil Anu. But before we start, I just published my first article as an independent researcher. It's called Earthucation, using interdisciplinary philosophy, education and science communication to understand the climate crisis. It's published on futurebased.org and you can find the link in the description. Today we will discuss Plato's allegory of the cave from a philosophy of science perspective. Our guide today is Rani Lil Anjum. Rani is a philosopher at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences, working in philosophy of science and medicine. She leads the Center for Applied Philosophy of Science together with Yevgenia Tomkiv. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Her expertise is in the philosophy of causality, complexity, probability and risk, and other philosophical biases in science that influence choice of theory, method, policy and practice. What I really appreciate about Rani is that she made a syllabus in podcast episodes for introduction to philosophy class to reduce screen time when teaching went digital. She is sharing this syllabus online, so you can just find the link on her website. So Rani, thank you so much for speaking with me about philosophy of science and science. Well, thank you for having me. Let's just get started right away. Why do we need philosophy in science at all? Well, I think actually there is so much philosophy in science, uh, both in scientific uh, methodology and uh, in norms of how to best practice science, uh, it seems to me that the more I look for it, the more philosophy I find in, uh, in science and research in general. Is that something that everybody or researchers should know about? Or is it just if you want to, for instance, design a new me- methodology? Well, there are many discussions uh, in science that could have been more philosophical and more philosophically informed. For instance, now uh, there's a lot of disagreement uh, maybe within the discipline, but definitely between disciplines. Uh, What are the best methods? And sometimes even what are the best methods for establishing the same things like how do we establish cause-effect relationships? How do we estimate probabilities? How do we uh, evaluate risk? And when different disciplines would favor different approaches, um, me and my colleague Elena Rocca, we have argued that they're actually disagreeing about philosophy. How do you see then your your job as a philosopher? Is it just to kind of give an overview of the different philosophical approaches that you can take? Or do you have a preferred position? So the... The way that uh, Elena Rocca and I did it was that we first we worked in uh, philosophy of medicine and uh, we were uh, diving into the discussion about evidence-based approaches versus more person-centered approaches. And then we took it into science uh, and research more generally. And we tried to explain how um, two sides uh, in the methods discussion, for instance, could both be rational uh, based in very good arguments, but it depends on your philosophical starting point. 
And very often in, um, in your education, you only learn one approach. And so you would take for granted, for instance, if you, if you are in a discipline that uh, emphasizes a lot of data, uh, you don't really understand what should be the alternative. If you didn't have the data, what would you have uh, beyond speculation, for instance? So um, one thing is to explain um, to scientists what kind of philosophical assumptions they base their uh, discipline on. But another is to also teach them something about alternative approaches and show how they would arrive at different conclusions from them. So uh, it doesn't mean that there's only one way to do it. Uh, interdisciplinary collaboration, for instance, has an advantage for scientists exactly because they start from different uh, perspectives and they find different things. So they could at best complement each other. Uh, at worst, they could contradict each other. <laughs> and then it's important to show what is the contradiction because it might be that they use the same term and mean different things like for instance what's knowledge well that's a big question <laughs> yeah but this is i guess the place to start right because uh it's like if you grow up in one country you just assume the way things are done there is is universal but then when you travel abroad then you discover there's different cultures and different ways of doing things so uh, if you study medicine and you're taught evidence-based medicine which is you know a great approach with many benefits you might think well this is the way to do science or the way to do medicine and if you work with other people with other approaches at least i guess this is the first start right to recognize hey the way i'm doing things it's based on philosophical assumptions which is why i really like your concept of philosophical bias before we get into knowledge, could you could you speak about that a little bit, about philosophical bias and how this is useful for medicine and other approaches? We introduced the term philosophical bias, so that was not just me and Elena Rocca, it's also Fredrik Andersen, another colleague of mine. And, Wonderful uh, Scandinavian names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the Scandinavian powerhouse. Uh, so we, um, we had all worked uh, on those things, but we hadn't called it the philosophical bias. But uh, we used bias also as an acronym for basic implicit assumptions in science mm. because they are so fundamental that we're not aware of them. And uh, they are also biases in the more traditional sense because they, um, they skew and they influence the way that... Um, we generate hypotheses, for instance, and how we evaluate evidence, what kind of results uh, that we draw when we see uh, the evidence. Like, okay, is this risky? Is it not, is it not risky? Is it safe? Should we do it? So um, I think using the word bias makes it sound a bit like it's a negative thing that we should get rid of. Because usually if we have biases like gender bias, for instance, we don't want that, so we want to get rid of it. But what we argued in this paper was that, uh, and it's called that, uh, philosophical bias is the one bias that science cannot avoid. And it's, uh, it's exactly that, because you could, uh, you could have a bias or basic implicit assumption about the nature of cause-effect relationships. But you cannot say that you're not going to assume anything about it. You're just going to establish it or just going to look for it. 
uh, you have to assume something about it in order to look for it. Because what are you going to look for? Um, are you going to look for a regularity, for instance, like a correlation plus something more? Are you going to look like something that is a necessary condition for the effect? Are you going to look for a probability racer or a difference maker? Uh, so the only thing you can do with the philosophical bias is to know or learn about the alternatives and to learn about the limitations and strengths of each, each of these methods. And then you can uh, choose the bias that you think is the most rational or the one that fits best in your maybe scientific paradigm uh, in a way. So it, you need to learn something about the alternative in order to be able to critically reflect upon those assumptions that came through your science education. Yeah, I really like that because it's it's kind of a judo move as well because the word bias, of course, is very well known to scientists, but then it's usually taken to mean that there's an objective reality out there. And as a scientist, I am subjective always. We recognize that. I can never be 100% objective, but this is the ideal. And if I am able to exclude all the bias, I'm able to say something about the actual causes that are at play in the objective world out there. But then when you introduce philosophical bias, then you're saying, well, this is actually one philosophical position of, of realism, the assumption that there is this objective world and this is the way that cause and effect works. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I really like that, yeah. And uh, one of my other philosophy colleagues, Svein Anders Nordli, he also argued exactly that, that the philosophical or that the term bias is itself a philosophical bias exactly for the reasons that you said. Because yeah. uh, very often we think, yeah, there is an objective way to look at things, which is completely neutral. You assume nothing. And then the alternative is that you assume a bunch of stuff that you should have not uh, really, you should have been too good to assume a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. And, and of course, it's very controversial uh, the approach that we take to philosophy of science because uh, it goes clearly and explicitly against this kind of positivist approach to science, which says that uh, science should be entirely neutral and that it's purely empirical and that any kind of non-empirical claims should not be part of any scientific um, assumption or practice. And And what we're saying basically is that that's impossible because even that is an empiricist uh, assumption and a realist assumption saying that we can only trust what we can get through our senses. So that's definitely a bias to assume that science could be bias-free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've spoken before a few episodes ago with astrophysicist Vincent Icke about the idea that exists of science in society versus the way it actually works. And in the previous episode with Lara Varpio about, yeah, why do we really need philosophy of science in, well, in this case, in medical education, but I think we need it in all sciences. And oh, as you know, this, this podcast is about Plato's cave. And, and yeah, what I like about speaking is with philosophers is you can just ask very big questions, right? So yeah. Let's let's go into Plato's cave later. We can kind of maybe qualify it whether this is really the the approach because there are many other approaches as well. But so uh, let's start with the big question: What is knowledge? 
So what is knowledge? Yeah, that's really one of the most interesting questions in philosophy that really should interest scientists and researchers. Uh, because it's not, uh, I think, primarily the idea that there's only one type of knowledge um, that is the real idea in philosophy here. I think it's more that there are different types of knowledge that are better or worse, especially for scientific uh, purposes. So, I mean, I'm, I'm now looking out the window and I'm seeing birds eating um, because I just put out bird food, but surely that's not very scientifically interesting. <laughs> so the question is whether that type of knowledge that I just uh, I just uh, look out the window and I see something, what can I do with that type of knowledge? Can I trust that type of knowledge? I, I don't have my glasses. I'm a bit nearsighted. Maybe uh, I'm not seeing the reality as it is. So... Um, I think um, many people who are interested in the type of knowledge that science should strive for would say that we need something more than that type of very particular subjective, <laughs> um, contextual type of knowledge. And that's where I think uh, Plato comes in and he sounds very reasonable because he says that if you're going to have any type of knowledge that is the way I interpret it, is scientifically uh, relevant or is the highest form of knowledge, it has to be knowledge that goes beyond those particular birds and that particular food and my particular garden. Uh, it has to be something that other people can use for something, something that will outlive those birds and outlive me. So that uh, the type of knowledge that we want should be more general. I guess it starts with you don't just go in a vacuum knowing things, right? You want to know something because you have a question or it enables you to do something. Or, for instance, you, you have to know what birds eat in order to buy the right food and put it out there. Yeah, so even to say that I see birds would, for Plato, be to say something more general because the only reason why I can see those particular birds is because I have an idea of what a bird is and something that is common for all birds. So even using concepts would be impossible if there wasn't something more general behind it. Yeah. Of course, you could have the opposite philosophical bias and say that the only reason why you have this more general concept of a bird is because you've seen so many different birds and then you just make a kind of average bird and that's your concept and then the average birds for the different types of species. So the question is always in philosophy, what comes first? <laughs> What's more foundational? Uh, is it the particular? Is it the general? Is it the abstract? Is it the concrete? And that's where I think it's easy to get when I teach philosophy, it's easy to get students to understand Plato's idea of this general or more universal type of knowledge that goes beyond, because they all come into certain disciplines, and some of them study birds. Some of them study um, just like uh, soil science or water. or And um, when they do that, it's not like they learn only about partic particular contexts 
but they learn something that is more theoretically uh, relevant. So their theories go way beyond the particular observations. So you can do a lot of observations, but what you're trying to get from your studies is to learn something that would also apply elsewhere. And if it doesn't apply elsewhere, it starts to sound very much like um, maybe history or, I mean, even uh, social anthropology, when you learn something about one culture, you want to say that you learn something about culture as such that you can apply in different settings. And when you study history, you maybe study a particular event. But history is also about learning about historical mechanisms and how things influence each other. And, and those are also more general and maybe more abstract than what you can study in the concrete. So I think Plato, in his way of thinking about knowledge as the most general type of insights uh, that has application way beyond what we're studying in the concrete. I think that's a very important ideal in science. Yeah. yeah it relates to what you said before, right? That, that you need philosophy to think about, for instance, how do you form hypotheses and what kind of assumptions do you make about causes and effects? And those are all kind of conceptual questions, right? So... Does that does that relate to what you're saying that that actually there's there's a type of knowledge for instance you go you have a certain question as maybe a geologist or as a medical scientist but these two different scientists will already have completely different questions and completely different ways of looking at things so before they even start their concrete study or their research they already have a certain kind of knowledge which is basing concepts which you know, are not they're not the first to do this. This has been, if you look at medicine, it's already well Hippocrates and and all those people. You know, they they've there's already a lot of conceptual baggage that you have. I guess my question is, according to Plato, would that be more ideal knowledge than the actual studies that you're doing? Well, I guess if you uh, are looking at genes. For instance, you can look at particular genes, uh, but those genes are not themselves very interesting unless they're representative for something, we might think. And also the concept of a gene was not something that was discovered just in the world. Genes existed as a theoretical placeholder for some inheritance stuff that we were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Just like molecules or, well, many concepts in physics first, they exist as concepts. And then we start to look, you know, can we find something in the real world? Yeah. For instance, the atom. Yeah. The atom existed in a way in uh, Democrit's philosophy, where he said there are such things as the smallest things that have their essence and their properties, and everything is built up on, from those. So it's not like he had seen them, <laughs> these atoms. Um, but the idea was there. And uh, the same with the heliocentric uh, worldview. The, the concept was there. Uh, the theory was there long before uh, the theory was confirmed uh, by data. Um, and uh, 
I think for students and for scientists and future researchers to understand how much theory might influence your data and how much uh, your philosophical assumptions influence the way that you go about to gather knowledge. I think that is really important. And especially if you want to have scientists that are a bit um, self-critical and want to collaborate with other scientists and other researchers or even do transdisciplinary studies where you also include stakeholders because you have to understand that your perspective is not the only perspective and it's not the only true perspective. And I, and what I see from many um, contexts where uh, people are supposed to work interdisciplinary is that half the people think the other half are not really scientists or they're not doing high quality research. Yeah. Because if it was high quality research, they should have done it like this and this. And what counts as result should or should not be a theory, for instance. So in some fields, they would say, I don't want you to do theoretical speculations because that has no role to play in science because you cannot back it up. All I'm interested in is to hear what your results are. I want to hear your data and I want to see your analysis of those data. But I'm not going to listen to you go on about why you think this happened. But for other disciplines, they might say, okay, you might have the data, but if you cannot explain anything, then what do I need them for? So, so you can see the, the end uh, aim of uh, science would be different in different uh, disciplines. So when those people come together, they will, they will often start telling each other that my way to do it is the best. <laughs> so I guess there are different ideas about what counts as knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Because um, so Plato would say that uh, uh, the highest form of knowledge is the one that is universal. It yeah. applies everywhere and nowhere. <laughs> and very many, for instance, uh, uh, laws of theoretical physics are exactly like that. I mean, the law of gravitational attraction it describes a setting that is highly abstract, highly idealized, yeah. where there's only like uh, maybe two objects uh, and no other force. So it's just it's just um, uh, something that you have to abstract away from what you discover through your senses. You can see things fall, but the theory of gravitational attraction, you would have to completely abstract away from what you see. So the idea is, from this Plato's ideal is that when you have these laws, they would describe how things should work under some ideal abstract conditions. And a lot of sciences, they use models that are very ideal, very abstract. Sometimes you use lab settings where you try to control any interference, take them out. Uh, you have to control temperature. You don't want any dust. You don't want too much light. I mean, all of these things you do to get closer to a more ideal setting where you would get these more general, uh, maybe you would get the same result each time, ideally, if you did it exactly the same way. But you know that out in the real world, real-life bacteria, for instance, they are nothing like the clones that you are, or the very identical uh, genetic uh, uh, animal models or bacteria models that you use in your 
in your lab. But still, why do we do it? We do it because we think there's something that you can understand from this idealized context that is more general, more universal than if you go out and study the messy reality. Well, I, I actually really like this example because it comes to the question about where do we look for this universal? So in the approach that you should study everything in a lab setting as much as possible, because real life is too chaotic to study. So instantly you discount a lot of phenomena already, complexity. If, if we speak about medicine, for instance, if you want to study a certain uh, symptom or a certain disease, uh, maybe already you start to exclude people who, who have comorbidities, like who, for instance, in addition to I'm, I'm not, I don't have medical training, so maybe it's complete nonsense what I say. But in addition to uh, asthma, they also have maybe chronic pain and, and, and other things. Then a lab is kind of the ideal setting. Yeah, but actually in medicine, uh, they wouldn't say the lab is the ideal setting. Yeah, that's Because right. it's yeah. so far from the... Because in evidence-based medicine, they have the opposite approach. It's uh, not the rationalist. Platon, uh, platonic ideal. It's the ideal of the empiricist and more like David Human uh, saying that you should only trust your data and the data should be very varied. But it's exactly what you say that, okay, what do you do if you're going to find anything out about cause and effect relationship? Because there, it doesn't matter if you're Plato or whether you are Hume, because you're still going to look for same cause, same effect under the same conditions. So whether you get those same conditions in a model or in the lab or in the abstract law of nature, it's still the same thing they're looking for. So um, Hume would look for perfect regularities. Where do you find these perfect regularities? Uh, in medicine, they say you never find perfect regularities. You will find a lot of different things. But what you can find, as you say, is that um, you can find an average or a normal. So maybe you can, instead of saying under ideal conditions, you would say under normal conditions. Or you could assume that you had an identical twin that was medically identical as well. So they had exactly the same history as you uh, medically. So then you would assume that what happened to your twin would also happen to you. So if your twin got better from this medication, you should get better from this medication. So a lot of uh, medicine is based on finding the right subgroup of individuals where they would have a universal truth. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, Plato sneaks in everywhere. That's the thing. When it comes to cause and effect relationship, he would. So if you want to have a real critic of Plato, you have to go way beyond Hume. You have to go to Nancy Cartwright, for instance. And John Dupre saying that the world is dappled or uh, it's messy. So because then uh, what both John Dupre and Nancy Cartwright would say is that we have to look more at the particular and we have to look more at variation. We cannot get hung up on what's the same, the same, the same, and ideal and abstract and essences. So for instance, John Dupre, he would say, we have all these ways to classify the world into these perfect forms and concepts where you have this species and this species and this species. 
And he says, but actually, there's no such clear-cut distinction between species that you could tell exactly what is what. So he says, we are forcing these types of, I, I would say, platonic ideals of this universe, universal uh, truth um, on the world. So they are in our expectations of the world. And we can try as much as we can to, to divide it up neatly and come up with all these law-like essences and, uh, and uh, causal truths. But the reality is always going to resist that type of uh, categorization and law-like approach. Yeah, it goes really deep, right? Because even if, if we go back to the allegory of the cave, then at the surface, even you would have the concept of distinctions. Even the, the idea that you are able to distinguish between different things or different entities in the world, the concept of distinction is already, it's so fundamental to everything that we hardly think about it. And the concept of a category and the concept of uh, species, I mean, that's maybe already a little bit uh, down. Personally, I distinguish between you can read the allegory of the cave as kind of a thought experiment and as a text, which has, if you start to read our actual text, it has a lot of detail in it. And then on the other hand, there's the Platonists, the, the ones that have kind of extracted a theory from that. And usually that theory is something like you have to get to the ideal knowledge and then from there you can interpret the world. But if you look at the allegory, I think it's way more complex because first of all, the question is, where do you look for the ideal? If you look for in medicine for the ideal comparison, you can say we take twins, but then you already make choices regarding, well, if two people have the same DNA, then, you know, we can compare there, but maybe there are other factors at play as well. Then the, the person in the allegory goes up to the surface. And maybe there they get the kind of mathematical knowledge that we were speaking about, like the laws of nature. Maybe they have this ideal, uh, you know, the, the formula, the universal formula that explains everything. But we can stop there and say, well, then they have found the truth. But if you follow the allegory, they go back into the cave and nothing makes sense what they say. They can say, well, I have found the universal formula for everything. But it doesn't communicate because then you have the problem of how do you translate this ideal mathematical knowledge actually back to the real world again. So, yeah, I guess I just like this this framework of thinking about it and complicating it, uh, which, which you do as well. I guess my next question is, okay, we've spoken about knowledge. Maybe there's there's an ideal form of knowledge, but is there like a division between knowledge and not knowledge? Or are there different levels of knowledge? Are there also kind of intermediary forms of knowledge that are not like the mathematical knowledge, but they're already better than maybe some lesser forms of knowledge? In science and also in policymaking, decision-making, now there's this big emphasis on having as much data as possible. So what we call evidence today is data and lots of it. So we use very many quantitative methods where we just gather a lot of single data. <laughs> and uh, this big data science ideal is that if you had all the data, you would have all the general type of knowledge you need. You would have any type of knowledge you need because you could even have cause effect 
understandings and probabilistic uh, understandings, risk. Uh, all of this could be generated by counting how often something happens. Uh, what happens? How often? That, that's what the what exactly what Plato says. That's what the prisoners do, right? They count how yeah. often this shadow comes, and they have perfect knowledge about that. Exactly, and uh, and I think uh, that really shows uh, how far uh, evidence-based medicine and these evidence-based approaches in social science have moved from the traditional understanding of science, which is much more theory-driven, um, to say that, no, it's much better to just uh, be like... Uh, the statistics uh, central bureau of the, the nation to just gather all the facts about the world and that's it. Then you know what you should do. You know what would happen if you do this and this. And all of this is based on a very um, quantitative idea of what science should do. If you have counted everything and studied everything, then you know everything that is worth knowing. And I would personally say that I think that's, entirely wrong <laughs> i would say that uh, uh that's just like uh thinking you can do a survey and that's it but for me if you haven't explained anything if you haven't tried to understand something if you haven't brought with you something to those studies then what you would have is something like raw data raw uninterpreted data which would be like if you were born blind and then you had an operation, you got your eyesight and you opened your eyes. It's not like you would see the birds and the trees and your mom. You would have to touch it and you would have to smell it and sound it, like hear it first. You, you would have to learn how to interpret the things that the, the light that hits your eye. And the same if you're born deaf and then you get your, your hearing. You will have to learn how to interpret the noise. And uh, and so to think that we could have this type of raw or neutral data that could be just shared around uh, and used for whatever purpose, this is what Sabina Leonelli says is uh, is not possible because data are also constructed; they are produced. What counts as data and what counts as noise? Because even in this process of of big data. It's not just like you you switch on a recorder and it records everything. No, there's a whole process. First of all, which kind of device do you use to record the data? Do you want audio or do you want to count things? There's a lot of choices in that. And then afterwards, the data is, I think they call it cleaning, which is also this euphemistic term, but it basically says, okay, yeah, no, this is too messy. No, this is too messy. And I think this this idea of raw data is also kind of a myth. Yeah, it's uh, it's also a philosophical bias that there could be these raw data. So it's the empiricist saying that you just open your eyes, you open your ears, and then the world comes in. Uh, that's the naive form of empiricism, where you see a tree, you think of a tree, that's the tree, uh, and it's there in the world. But if you think of how much we have to learn how to see, so this is what uh, Norwood Russell Hansen says. He says, if you're a scientist, you have learned a lot of science, and that's why you can see these things in the microscope, for instance. If you haven't learned a lot of science, then you don't know what you're seeing. You're just having these uh, uh, retinal responses uh, to, <laughs> to the light, but you don't see anything. Yeah. And, and I think because so much of our knowledge is not scientific, we don't really notice how much we have learned to see what we see 
So I think this um, this um, more theoretical, conceptual approaches to the world, I, I think it fits better with Plato's um, ideas. I don't know what you think, that you bring something conceptual also with you to the particular. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think that I, I'm really interested in Charles Sander Pierce as well. He's saying something similar to what you said before, uh, this idea of abduction. So he, he uses deduction. So you have the idea of a bird and then you deduce that this is a bird. And induction is you observe many things and then you, you start to observe patterns and you think, oh, well, this, I guess these are this type of birds. And then he has this concept of abduction and abduction has to do with creativity. It's uh, like a creative leap. And he's saying that even if I look at the tree outside of the window, I'm already doing an abduction because otherwise you would just see this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing. But to even say, well, maybe these things are related or maybe these are different things that already requires uh, something. And that's what I think Plato is so relevant because he points us to the fact uh, si similar to the philosophical bias that even to ask a question there is already so much that goes before it and and all that stuff has to do with your concepts so you do have to kind of do this yeah i've got i've written an article with a colleague it's it's called philosophical gardening so you have to kind of do this philosophical gardening of your concepts and and at least critically look at them so yeah, it doesn't, it, and of course, it doesn't mean that your concepts on and your idea of what to look for shouldn't be wrong and shouldn't be uh, adjusted in meeting with uh, with the world. But also, if if it is the case that our uh, observations are theory dependent or theory laden to some degree, then of course it also shows why it's so easy to confirm your theories. Because, of course, you're going to see, you're going to find what you look for. And, and that's the same with the philosophical concept. If, you, if you're saying that the relevant knowledge is what you can get through your senses, then, of course, that's the only knowledge you get. Because so, you don't even notice all the other no, possible knowledge that might be No, there. you get the data. Yeah. Um, and then if you say uh, scientific knowledge is what you can get through quantitative and statistical approaches, when... Well, then you end up with statistical knowledge. But that doesn't mean there isn't other types of knowledge or that there aren't any biases in the way that you uh, analyze your statistical knowledge. So I don't think you can do too much philosophy in science. I think, to, I think the really good scientists, they were also aware of the philosophical level. And they were also aware of the weaknesses of their own theories. Uh, because they would know about the alternatives. So I think if you criticize a perspective, then you know both about the approach that you have yourself and the theory that you criticize usually. Mm -hmm. But if you think there's only one way, then why should you why should you understand anything about the weaknesses? I mean, sometimes people say, well, maybe statistical methods aren't the best methods, but what's the alternative? I mean, and to for understanding causality, for instance. 
yeah, statistical methods start with a particular worldview about human beings and what kinds of knowledge and everything like that. So we've been talking about science a lot so far, but Plato's allegory, how do you use it in your education? When I, um, when I teach Plato, it is in the context of history of uh, philosophy. Another way to think about Plato for their own sake as students is to think about, well, what kind of knowledge uh, do I trust? Who presents me this knowledge? Who am I to challenge <laughs> this knowledge? And um, I use one illustration. It's like a funny comic version of Plato's uh, cave allegory, and it's called uh, A Temporal Platon. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's a picture where uh, the prisoners sit in the cave and they watch the wall of the cave, but there's a big screen there, a oh, big yeah. television. <laughs> and behind them, there's the editor of the program. And you see a camera pointing at someone who is being interviewed at the news mm -hmm. and uh, the person who is showing which types of screens. So the editor shows which types of screens and, and how it is presented, what is actually filmed. So yeah, you could say that the reality that is created down in the cave by the, um, the prison guards, uh, it's, it's highly edited. Yeah. And the people who watch it, they have to think that what they watch on television is like the real story. And up outside of the cave is the real world, which is very messy and complex and <laughs> which you would have to go out and study for yourself if you want to know anything about it. So, so I use it also to say that, okay, so when you have the shadows, you are trusting the type of knowledge that is presented to you by someone else. Yeah. So, for instance, by me as a teacher. So I say, well, I tell you what I think Plato said, and you're having to trust it. That's but right. Maybe yeah. you, yeah, maybe you don't understand it enough to be able to convince anyone else that Plato is correct, for instance, or that he's a good philosopher, or even explain his arguments. But, but you might get an idea. You might get some kind of uh, uh, weak idea. Yeah. Uh, about Plato and you think maybe he's awesome or maybe he's terrible. That's why I like this theme of this podcast. I did one episode about visual politics. And even if you only look at all the images that are there of Plato's cave, you just mentioned one, which I, I guess I can link it in the description. But there are so many different versions of it already. And if you're just beginning to be interested in philosophy and you look at Plato and you see this image, you think, yeah, that's right, the... You know, the media are lying to us and the real world is outside. But these are already, these images, I guess they have a philosophical bias as well. These are already the images of, of Plato's cave that exist in society. And then what I like to do is let's go back to the original text. But then already there's a problem because the original text is in Greek. And so I I did have Greek in, in high school, but not as good that I can read it. So I'm already playing with different translations. But even in the translations, there are already choices being made. For instance, he says, well, this this is about, let's think about uh, education. But education is an English word. The, the Greek word is paideia. Well, we had a whole episode about education as well. But then you already have to think, what did, Plato, what might he have meant by the word paideia in his time? And 
where we didn't have the traditional institutions, educational institutions. So already, I think this idea of, of look, look for yourself, do the research, which is, but then of course you have the problem that this is what all the conspiracy theories says as well, say as well, you know, do the research. Yeah, but there are always uh, idiots saying something that yeah. has a root in something that is uh, a good point. So uh, I, I still think it, uh, it's worth saying things like when you are presented with some facts or some theories through your education, you can trust it. You can trust it to be the best knowledge. But we also know that uh, theories come and go that knowledge develops all the time, that all of the authorities once thought that the earth was the center of the universe. I mean, there's a lot of things that we used to think that proved to be not uh, the correct way. So I, I say to them that to go through an education shouldn't be about indoctrination. It shouldn't be about being very certain and very arrogant, uh, believing that you know everything um, and that you can just say, well, I heard this, I learned this in my studies, so obviously it's correct. I mean, if we look at, for instance, the debate on the genetically modified organisms, it's very different which type of education you have. If you're in the education where you're taught that this is, of course, the best knowledge we have, it's the uh, most advanced uh, achievements of science, and that this is the future and this is what we can do with it, then, of course, you're not going to be very critical. Um, but if you're taught uh, something about risk assessment of genetically modified organisms, or maybe you do political science, uh, you think of uh, uh, agroecology, for instance, you will look at very different aspects. So, so I, I want to tell them that they are allowed to be critical uh, and have a critical perspective at what they learn, because whatever they learn, it's what we present to them. I mean, one thing is to just go out and believe everything you see uh, and everything you, you hear without reflection. Another is to learn something that is like systematic knowledge presented to you and you are um, encouraged to think about it uh, critically and make up your own mind. But then also if you start doing the real research and you study something for yourself, then you might learn something that couldn't be taught to you just by others. So uh, to become an expert is also to go more systematically into it, for instance. Yeah, exactly. So because also because, um, okay, let's say you um, st start to study something else to check if what you heard, if, the, if that's true or not. Okay, there's something else. It might be a Wikipedia page even just to get started somewhere. So obviously, if you just look at the Wikipedia page, this is not unique to you. But what is unique to you is that how you come there, because you already come there from this background knowledge, maybe having done a course with you and learning about the concept of philosophical bias. So if you read this Wikipedia page, you already you come with this baggage of the concept of philosophical bias, so that or you might already notice something about this Wikipedia page that no one else has have noticed, even if millions of people have uh, found it. So that's, yeah, sorry, just wanted to bring in this, this concept yeah. of interdisciplinarity, that it really matters that if you look at a new subject, it's not really new because you already have studied so many other things. You have so much other background knowledge as well. 
Yeah, and we gave this course now about expert disagreement and uh, controversies about sustainability and how to understand the philosophical biases of those controversies. And uh, in the beginning of the semester, it was very hard for many of the students to understand why they were learning all this philosophy. And especially because in Norway, there's already an introductory course in philosophy in the bachelor. And now they are master students and they have to learn again and hear again about uh, Plato and uh, relativists and all of these things and empiricists. And they're like, oh, why do we do this? But then along the semester, when the courses start developing, they start recognizing in their own education these philosophical biases. So for instance, we had this discussion about how much emphasis would your discipline place on data versus theories. Uh, the studies that you read about, are they only saying what are the data or do they also try to explain uh, how important is it to have a theory to explain? And then the student uh, wrote in the reflection notes that, well, first, when I heard this question, I thought, what's the point? Of course, you need both theory and data. But then he had heard uh, in his studies, they had a guest lecturer who sat in the back listening to someone else talk. And then he shouted, but where's your data? Do you have any data to back it up? And then he said, since then, all he heard in his course was like, where's your data? Where's your data? Do you have the data? And he said, okay, so obviously I, there is this empiricist data bias in my field. But he wouldn't have noticed it beforehand, like without thinking about it. So now it's possible for him to meet um, people from a different discipline that would emphasize data, like data less and still think it's scientific. That's a nice kind of micro illustration of, of doing this journey through Plato's cave, right? Yeah. So what we try to train the students in is to um, talk to people from different disciplines and explain and make explicit uh, their own philosophical biases. They might not even agree with the philosophical biases of their own study. They might think, well, actually, maybe in ethics, they have a, they have a bias that they think uh, humans and animals are worth the same. But in their studies, humans are worth much more, uh, for instance. So a lot of our students might be vegetarian and vegans, but they come to studies that say, well, the reason why we should preserve these species or think about these animals is because otherwise it's going to be really bad for us. It's good to make them also think about whether they have the same bias as their education or whether they will eventually um, adopt that bias. Yeah. Well, that's right. Well, I, I used to teach philosophy for children. And yeah. I have to say, oh, some of the questions, and I never hear these questions from adults. So if, <laughs> if you know, one way to, to start a, a philosophical course is to say, well, start, what are philosophical questions? And do you have examples of that? And well, maybe adults would say, well, what is knowledge or something like that, right? But then the children came with things like, does time have a shape? Whoa, nice question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so how do you see your role as a philosopher in all this? Because I said I was going to ask big questions, right? So maybe we should ask the question, what is a philosopher in society today? You know, in, in Plato's day, you wouldn't have to pay taxes. That changed, obviously. But maybe some other things changed as well. 
Well, I guess different philosophers would interpret their role in very different ways. This thing that I really enjoy in, in philosophy is that there are no wrong answers. There's no position that is entirely wrong. <laughs> and the students like it when we discuss, when I say, and there's no right or wrong answer. That really loosens up the discussion. It's not about, I, I don't think philosophy is about clever arguments. I don't think it's about making airtight arguments that no one can find any flaw in without any contradiction, such and such. I, I think that way to do philosophy, it's not for me at all. I don't want to have like an argument that only says if A, then A, or <laughs> if A and B, then A and B. Uh, I, I want to, I want to go in and think and speculate more and i want uh, i want philosophers to also want to seek the right way even though in philosophy there is no right way in that sense i met this really big difference in culture between scandinavia and uh, uk when mm -hmm. i came there in uk philosophy is very professional in a way, people are very clever in their arguments. Yeah. But I missed the kind of sincerity of uh, philosophical thinking that well, came, yeah, yeah. like in my education, where I mean, so yeah, many people in Norway, especially in the old days or older days, you could write a lot for your desk drawer. It's not like you had these perfectly lined up publications where you made one argument here, one argument there, and then the third argument, and you get them published in the highest uh, journals. I mean, it, it's it's more about the thinking process and you want to make like this uh, grand piece uh, or this, uh, you want to arrive at something that is like the best thing you could have done, which also means that it's very difficult to get it published, of course. So what I learned in, in England was to be much more pragmatic about uh, what I should include in a, in a publication. So more like your philosophical career. Yeah, you don't present more than uh, the uh, reviewers can accept. Yeah. You know, in one go, I would like to criticize everything in one paper and to present something entirely different. But I, I never got it published. So... I learned about this being much more pragmatic and much more professional, but I think something, get, something gets lost because philosophy is very conservative and peer review is very conservative in the sense that if people write something that everyone agrees upon, then of course it's very easy to get it published. But very often I see that papers get rejected because the reviewers disagree or they're not convinced. That seems very anti-philosophical. <laughs> I think in, in philosophy, we have to be a bit more open-minded about, yeah, all these philosophical traditions, they exist. And all of these philosophical uh, traditions, they are um, rational. <laughs> and we should dare to think and we should dare to be radical in our thinking. I, I really think that's, for me, the attraction of philosophy I wouldn't like this kind of um, sophistry or scholasticism. You know, it's it's not the argument that I love. It's 
the philosophical position and it's the thinking. And when I say argument, I mean the logical argument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you understand what I mean? Or I is do, that yeah. really vague? No, exactly. And I think <laughs> one, yeah, one last question is, do you spend more time speaking with other philosophers or do you spend more time speaking with scientists and students and non-philosophical people? I actually really like the challenge of convincing, <laughs> persuading <laughs> students that philosophy is relevant and interesting, even if that was not what they wanted to study. So in a way, I enjoy more uh, talking to people outside of philosophy about philosophy, trying to engage them in philosophical uh, reflection than talking to, well, philosophers who, who can get very nerdy. So I don't enjoy very nerdy conferences. Uh, I sometimes think that philosophy starts with a really big question and then it becomes a professional discussion and then everyone's talking about principle one, principle two, and principle three and various versions of that principle. And then they call it something, probably an acronym, and then no one can understand <laughs> what they're talking about. I mean, most most conferences where I go... If I would miss the first sentence or two, three sentences, I wouldn't understand anything because it's within a particular topic with a specialization where you assume that people read everything you read and you're arguing about the same thing. I, I, I really like philosophy to keep, you know, its head above water, at least at some points uh, where you can say, okay, actually what we're talking about, it's is knowledge. <laughs> what can we know or what's the highest form of knowledge instead of just like one small principle in one philosopher's publication? I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I guess we, we got back where we started, the big questions, asking the big questions. Thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find links to Rani's work in the description including her podcast syllabus for Intro to Philosophy. And you can find other episodes on livefromplatoscave.com. And I published my vision on the climate crisis on futurebased.org. Next episode, I will discuss the philosophy of Henry Bergson with Jean Proust. I hope to see you then.